0: I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There's such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast playlists can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts.
1: This is a CBC Podcast. One thing important that we have learned from astronomy is the story of the universe.
0: Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Today, the first of our 2019 series on the brilliant astrophysicist Hubert Reeves. He sadly passed away on Friday, October 13th, 2023, at the age of 91. Reeves was one of the world's foremost experts on the Big Bang Theory, the opening chapter of the history of our universe.
1: The simple sentence, the universe has an history, is probably the most important discovery of the 20th century.
0: Not only is Hubert Reeves revered in the science world, recipient of the prestigious Albert Einstein Prize, he's also treated with rock star status in his adopted country of France, in part as a popularizer of science. Reeves believes that not explaining complex science is undemocratic. He's also treasured in Quebec, where he was born and raised. Yet he's not widely known in the English-speaking world, Outside the scientific community, until recently, Hubert Reeves was traveling the globe, giving lectures, speaking out about climate change and harm to biodiversity, and hosting classical concerts with poetry and spoken word.
1: Sans bruit sur le <inaudible> miroir des lacs profonds et calmes, le cygne chasse l'onde de sa large palme et glisse.
0: A year ago, the 87-year-old experienced a serious health setback and has had to take a break from public appearances. But this past April, Hubert was able to travel from his Paris home with his wife Camille to their 17th-century country estate in Malicorne, Burgundy, a breathtaking property where the prolific author has written several of his books. And it was there, at the height of spring, amidst his acres of lush organic gardens and trees, where Reeves, despite the fragility of his illness, spoke with Ideas producer Mary Link.
2: Bonjour.
1: How are you today? Okay, okay. It was difficult this morning, but now it's getting It feels better? better? Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: We're calling this two-part series, Finding Meaning in the Universe. Conversations with astrophysicist Hubert Reeves. Part one is The Origins of Us. Hubert, with the aid of a cane and Mary with her microphone, began with a short stroll. Can peux walk a
2: little bit? Can
1: you walk a little bit? Yes. To the Merlecon? Yes. Do you need my hand? No, no, it's very well. With that, it's very So,
2: Hubert, we are walking in this magnificent place in the country in Burgundy. What does this, this place mean to you?
1: The paradise. I have been in many places in the world, almost every country, and the best place for me is here. The country, the trees. Of course, this is a completely ecologically dealt place, so we, we can see some a little more of the of the butterfly, there were a lot more in the past. But still, we have quite a lot. So for me, it's a place where, where I am well.
2: And it's also a place for solitude. Why is it important to be alone as opposed to with others in nature?
1: There is a, a Japanese expression that is called taking a bath in the woods, a bath in the, the, the bois. And that means you go walking alone, it's very important, in the wood, and you think of nothing. You just look around and you try to get this perception that you have of the trees, the mysterious presence of the trees, which is not something that implies words, but implies things that you feel in all your body. And this place here is surrounded by a large forest. I have written many things here, which just came like this when walking, yeah. But it's mostly before the idea of doing something, is the idea of feeling something. And it takes time to be in that mood.
2: Where did you learn to be kind of at
1: one with nature? Because a lot of people are losing that these days. When I was a kid, we lived in Canada, close to Montreal, like St. Louis, and in the middle of the lake, it was large lakes, but there were a lot of marshes with turtles. You know, there is no more, of course. There were many flowers, many animals, and I like to go there with the canoe and then just stop and just wait and look. And after a certain time, the animals come back. You see the butterflies, you see everything. And this is my best Souvenirs of of my first contact of, of nature, a sense of wholeness, being like a spectator, not an actor, just trying to let me forget myself, if you can say, and then to feel, to feel to exist, to be in the world, to be in nature.
2: We arrive at a large courtyard at the center of the property. It's surrounded by ancient stone and wooden buildings, lovingly restored over 40 years by Hubert and his wife Camille. It used to be the stable area of a chateau nearby that has since fallen down. We come to a long wooden table on the lawn, a table that in the evenings is often full of visiting artists and musicians and writers, but right now it's just Hubert and myself.
1: Let's just sit here.
2: He's a small man who looks a bit like a slim Santa Claus with blue twinkly eyes and when sitting next to him his kindness and humanity feels intoxicating. We begin the conversation with, well, the beginning. You're one of the foremost experts on the Big Bang theory. And if I was to explain it, I'd say it just, it's the bang that led to the beginning of our universe. That's my simplistic take. But you call the Big Bang not only very important and an important theory, but also kind of strange. Why is that?
1: Well, for one thing, when it was produced, generated by the physicist, it was the most unpopular idea. Why? Because in the scientific tradition, the universe is eternal. It has always existed for all time. This was, I would say, the creed of the science after, say, the Newton, Galilee, the early astronomy. This was the dominant idea, as they say today. And then in 1915, 20, 20, 30, When it was discovered that this is not true, the universe has not always existed. Will it always exist? No one knows. But at least it has an age. What there was before that age, no one knows. But we can date the universe today, and it is roughly 14 billion years and this is contradictory with scientific knowledge until then. And it was not very unpopular with the physicists because it was this, like, coming back, don't tell us you're coming back to the Bible, which was not very helpful for scientists who thought that this was obscurantism. And this was the reason why, first, it was not accepted at all in the Soviet Union. It was not even possible to speak about it. And in uh, Occident, it was considered as uh, something a little fancy and probably wrong. From 1920, To 1965, it was a very unpopular idea. Then came an event, a major event in 1965, which we called the radiation fossil, fossil radiation, namely the discovery of that light, radio light, that was emitted first moment of the universe, and that proved without doubt, I would say, that the eternal universe is wrong, And the Big Bang is the most likely scenario for the story of the universe. Now, when I say the most likely scenario, I don't say the truth. In science, there is no such thing as truth. There is something as the most plausible. You could also make a vote and ask the best physicists, astrophysicists all over the planet and almost without exception, there is always some exception, they will say the Big Bang is the most likely story of the universe. We go from a universe which we thought to be eternal and unchanging to a universe which is very deeply changing, starting from something extremely hot, billions and billions of degrees, and slowly cooling down. This is not important only for science, but also for philosophy, for thinking, for anyone thinking, anyone to understand the world has to know what the scientific discoveries, knowledge tells us, and take it into account. And that is the very new thing that happened. Three things important. Einstein relativity, quantum physics... And the third one is the Big Bang. Whatever is your philosophy, the importance of this discovery is such that it has to be incorporated in any philosophy of the world, any vision of the world.
2: What can the Big Bang tell us, teach us? What can the Big Bang, what can the origins of the universe teach us as humans to make us more
1: humane? I don't know what to answer. One thing important that we have learned from the scenario and from astronomy is the story of the universe. And the story of the universe, a very important point, is the fact that the matter at the Big Bang, observed with the fossil radiation, is totally unstructured. There are no galaxies, no stars, no planet, No animals, of course, not even molecules, not even atoms. It is a very warm magma, millions of degrees, totally unstructured. And now, if you compare this state of the universe with the state today, one of the main difference is that our universe is highly structured. It has galaxies, it has stars, it has atoms, it has molecules. And all these structures were built during the life of the universe, namely by making atoms which, which congregates to make molecules, to congregate, to make planets, to congregate, to make cells. This is the story of the universe. And in this story, we, human people, are also one of these structures. Probably the most organized, the most powerful the most efficient structure in the universe, at least on Earth, we don't know about other place, is the human brain. The human brain is is a fantastically structured, and with this structure, we can destroy structure. You see, reality is that we are what is Sakash? What is it? Sacrificing. Sacrificing our our planet. So this is pointing to a duty, namely what we're doing is as serious as damaging one of the most evolved structure in the universe. You see, our body is made of atoms and the number of atoms in the body is very large. To give you an idea, one of a 29 zero is the number of atoms in, in all your bodies. These atoms were presumably present in the Big Bang, but completely dissociated, not related to each other, just floating like in a gas. You see, when I make conference, I, I make the little experiment. I tell people, now I will have you to make a little exercise. You will close your eyes and you will say, I exist. Samely, like, I exist. You will take place, you will take... Conscience of your existence. To be able to do that, which is the highest prowess ever made in the universe, it requires then one with 29 zero atoms are associated. And this is the story of all the universe stars making atoms and atoms and so on, in such a way that they can realize this very simple doing, namely to say, close your eyes and, and say, I exist.
2: I exist.
1: So you've, you have done one of the highest prowess ever done in the universe, and for that you need all your body, you need your toes, your, your stomach, to, to be able to do that. You need all that to work, to be in good shape.
2: And we need not to destroy that existence, that beautiful
1: existence. Exactly. So this makes a a duty to human people. They are the owner of one of the highest, most powerful organization structure of the world. And they have to make sure of its future. How
2: can the Big Bang become past a theory? How can we prove the Big Bang?
1: There are at least 10, ten proofs of the Big Bang that makes it uh, by far the best theory. It's not the truth. It's not the proof like if I tell you that the Earth is, is spherical, you, you can believe me. But the Big Bang is the best scenario and there are several tests based on elements, abundances, presence of some elements rather than others. There are good robust test that the Big Bang is the best today. That doesn't mean that there are no other, but at least it is by far the scenario that it is most credible, most confirmed to observation.
2: I, I read somewhere too, oh, I read one of your books, sorry, uh, that one of the reasons too that the Big Bang uh, theory is is more credible or robust is because of the predictions it made.
1: Exactly makes is the number of predictions, these things we've observed, and this is always a very good proof, what we call the fossil radiation, namely this light that was emitted when the universe was only a few thousand years. The existence of this light was predicted in particular by George Gamow, by, by other people, when was found with exactly, exactly the good properties, to better than one half of one percent, the fossil radiation is what the Big Bang theory implies. So this is impressive, but there is at least ten things that the theory predicted after or before they were discovered.
2: Where was fossil radiation
1: discovered? Well, the, the fossil radiation, for instance, was discovered in Holmdale, New Jersey, and it was discovered by chance by two engineers of Bell Telephone trying to track the satellites. The problem was that you would send a satellite and as soon as it passed the horizon, you could not get contact with it. So it was a waste of time. So it was necessary to find a way to keep contact with the satellite all through around the Earth. And these, these physicists found by testing a way that could, you could follow the satellite. And when they tried it, it worked. It worked when there were satellites... But it worked also when there were no satellites. The question was: What is this radiation that is covering the sky? It is not coming from one point; it comes from everywhere that you detect with radio telescope. What is it? What is the nature? And in fact, it was uh, this radiation was predicted to exist before it was found, and this radiation is the best proof of the Big Bang because it replicates what the Big Bang should emit to within this accuracy.
2: Is it sort of the litter of the Big Bang on Earth?
1: It is uh, like if uh, you could call it an early radiation which which was emitted when the universe was very hot and it is still travelling throughout the universe.
2: When you talk about the Big Bang, the big question is how can you have something from nothing? Do you think there's something before the Big Bang?
1: That n- nobody knows if there was a time when there was nothing. This is unfortunately implied in a little bit in the, the biblical literature because the word creation. When you use creation, you mean that there was a time, then there was nothing. And then there was something. There is absolutely no proof that there was a time when there was nothing. And if you think of it, it is quite impossible because how would you know that there was a time where there was nothing? I mean, it's impossible. Then you need proof. To say that there is something, you need some kind of proof, fossil, something like that. Fossil from a time when there was nothing, doesn't make sense so one has to be careful about that this idea of creation is a human mind creation there is absolutely no basis to say again what is what we say is that there is something since 14 billion years we know that before we don't even know if there was a before you see, you get into very delicate uh, arguments when you think about these ideas, about the idea of nothing. Because what can you say about nothing?
2: We find it very hard as humans to understand the concept of nothing. But do you think then there's a possibility there is such a thing as nothing?
1: I, I think the sentence means nothing. <laughs>
2: I like that. I like that. It's just a concept that we, we're so fixated on, aren't we, as humans? We just cannot get beyond ourselves. Right.
1: It's implied in our way of thinking. And our way of thinking does not need to reflect reality. Modern science tells us very often that things which are counterintuitive, reality is very often counterintuitive, and I like this sentence by Haldane, a, physics, a chemist. He says, the universe is strange, more strange than we think, more strange than we are able to think. The history is that human people, life appeared on Earth, And intelligence was, according to Darwin, and I believe that, a weapon to be able to live. You have, in this planet or anywhere, you have to eat and not to eat. Language, ideas, concepts were first born in this very operational way. There is no guarantee that these concepts that we make are really touching the intimacy of the world. They're mostly operational concept, which helps you to live and explain the fact that our ancestors were not eaten by the, the lion or the bear and so on. So when you replace the history of the knowledge in, in a real story, you say, what is the power of our way of understanding the world, and is this power applied to such thing as the universe? I don't think so. I think we have a limited intelligence. I often say to my, my friend, you would not think of teaching geometry to your cat. You don't think he can understand it, besides he is not interested. So there is no guarantee that our way of thinking is able to go to the profoundest depth of the universe. So we have to start with that. The history is that knowledge is operational. It works when you want to to eat and and, and, and kill animals. There is no guarantee that it works when you apply it to the universe. The idea that I say, we have made science, we have learned a lot of things, but it is, there is no guarantee that we can understand everything.
2: I think there's a lot of beauty to that, and that I've read in one of your books. You talk about you know, the prediction horizon, where we have a limit to our knowledge. And in in your book *In Malacorn*, you wrote about how uh, meteorologists can predict the. F- next day only accurate. Two weeks from now, is just a coin toss. And I went to our weatherman. I said, so how are you doing on that? And he said, well, we, now we can do about three days. But he said two weeks is still a toss-up. Yeah, most people don't know that. Most people think that we have the, the arrogance of, of being able to predict two weeks and be able to predict so much. But there is a limit. There is a prediction horizon, right?
1: That's right. There is the idea that, well, it's only a question of, of making computer. That's not true. The best computer will not give you the time next year at the same hour. It's built in, not in the instrument, but in the mathematics that we use. That there is always a, a border. We call it a predictory border.
2: Do you think we'll ever know if there's other
1: universes? Perhaps Perhaps many, many things exist that we don't know. Or I would put it this, the other way. We have no reason to affirm that we know everything. There is no proof of that. So we better live with that and live science like an adventure, which is a very powerful adventure. But how far can it go? How can we know?
2: The more we know, the less
0: we know.
1: You can say in a sense.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on RN and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. This is part one of our two-part series, Finding Meaning in the Universe, conversations with astrophysicist Hubert Reeves. We're calling this first show The Origins of Us. The acclaimed scientist is one of the world's foremost experts on the Big Bang theory. He was born in Quebec. He moved to France in the 1960s to become the director of research of the renowned Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique. He is universally revered, not just for his scientific discoveries and leadership, but also for his popularization of science in general. Head to our website to learn more about Hubert Reeves. You'll also find videos of him answering some of the big questions, like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? For this series, Hubert Reeves is in conversation with Ideas producer Mary Link at his place of refuge, his country estate in Malicorne, Burgundy. They turn to the question of whether humans will ever be able to fully understand the universe. At this point, 95% remains unexplained. The late physicist Stephen Hawking was one of the hopeful thinkers in search of the theory of everything, which would fully explain our universe through a theoretical framework of physics.
1: How can we understand the universe? Is it arbitrary, or is there a grand design? Do we still need a god? Twenty years on... I need to find answers to the fundamental questions about our existence is undiminished
2: Stephen Hawking thought that we would know the theory of everything by the end of the 20th century, and we never and we don't. <laughs> And you don't think it'll ever happen because that's what we were just talking about?
1: Because our instruments are not... Again, our instruments to knowing what is... I don't like the, the word the truth, but the most plausible version of what there was depends on the power of our tools to analyze and explore the world. And our tools are the concept and the reasoning... And these are human invention again, as I said before, who have themselves in theory. There is no guarantee that our knowledge, our tools of knowledge, are able, are on the level to go to the deepest part of the world. Again, the world is strange. Why do
2: you think he, a physicist, would have thought that, that we would have a theory of everything?
1: Well, it's a question that has been debated among many people. It was true that there's an interesting story about that. In 1850, Lord Kelvin said, physics is finished. We only have a a few decimals to learn, but almost nothing. This was before quantum mechanics, before the theory of relativity, before uh, the Big Bang. So I think people have a tendency to overestimate the power of science. Science is a powerful thing, but I don't think it has an infinite power.
2: I wanted to to read this quote. It's a bit naughty uh, to you. It was about string theory. I don't know what you think about string theory.
0: String theory is the attempt by theoretical physicists to create one theory that can be used to explain all of the forces in nature. It does this by explaining all elementary particles and all their interactions in terms of tiny, vibrating strings of energy.
1: String theory has a long story. In the 80s, it was thought to be perhaps the final theory. Now we know that not only it's not, it is not the case, but it is coming more and more unpopular. Why? because it never was confirmed by experiments. In science, the important thing is the observation. Quantum theory has many, many proofs. String theory have none. So for me, it is wait and see.
2: And, uh, and and in string theory, part of string theory, if I'm correct, is that there's parallel universes, right? And and so and, and this, as you say, it's not as popular. So the, now, you excuse me if I use a bad word, but there was an article I read recently in Scientific American about string theory, and it talked about how it's been challenged. And it and there was this cheeky, you know, Michante quote in the article, and it said, quote, "At its best, physics is the most potent." And precise of all scientific fields and yet it surpasses even psychology in its capacity for bullshit.
1: Yeah, I, I agree entirely. <laughs> I agree entirely. Unless you have a, a robust fact that tells you, yes, you search again.
2: We were talking earlier, and you were mentioning how no computer, because we make them originally, will be able to solve the sort of theory of everything. But do you think computers will profoundly change the world if we continue to have a world? Do you think that they. Because they, they talk about having, you know, intelligence, of having their own intelligence.
1: I know. Again, I don't know. Making prediction is a dangerous trade. I would uh, not. I don't know. It is, it's just. Probably it will change things. It has already changed many things. But let's go back 40,000 years. At the moment when the human could master fire, it's a good thing. With fire, you can warm your house. You can also burn the house of your neighbor. What is important is not so much what you can do, but what you do. Who choose to do? this. So certainly intelligence, artificial intelligence, will bring a lot of new power to people. That is clear. What will happen with this new power depends on who will decide what to do. Always through the history of invention, through the history of the, of the, the humanity, from the fire to the electricity to to nuclear, human people are, are very bright. They are inventor. They improvise. They find new things. The important thing on this level is what is being done with that. What becomes important is to make sure that these power are not left in the hands of people who are irresponsible. There is a, a great debate today about a story which is called Autonomous lethal uh, weapons. Namely, should we let inventors invent instrument that will not need a human person to say something? You see, this is almost uh, necessarily uh, catastrophic.
2: Is it the computers themselves who will decide? No. Yes.
0: Lethal autonomous weapons really means
1: Weapons that are meant to kill humans uh, without a human intervention.
0: Lethal autonomous weapons could locate, identify, and kill their targets without any input from a person. These weapons would react too fast for a human to maintain meaningful control.
1: And many countries, the United States, but many other, some people are fighting to do that other people are, are are against it there is an institute for life in mit where this is a, their aim is to try to stop any institution who would have as its aim to have an autonomous lethal weapon this is pure insanity
2: I'm curious, and we're talking about the uh, destruction of the universe and, and the you know atomic bomb and nuclear uh, weapons. When you were at Cornell, you did your PhD in Cornell. One of your mentors, is it Philip Morrison? Is that his name?
1: It was uh, Ed Solpeter. Philip Morrison was also and Hans Bethe, all three.
2: And all three, and they were part of the Manhattan Project and, and created the bomb. Beta
1: and, and Philip Morrison was in the plane who, who brought the bomb to... Hiroshima. So they were just coming back and the story of course with the student there was a lot of discussion and there was always this debate was it worthwhile, should we this was a very important debate.
2: What year were you at Cornell?
1: From 55 to 60.
2: So it was about a decade later after the bomb. Yes.
1: This was really a very important subject. I was We were students, and we were asking them about that, how they felt about that.
2: And so what were they saying to you? Did you talk to them about it? What were they saying
1: in terms of their guilt? No, we spent evenings discussing this. And Hans Bates said this. The day of the bombing, they were all expecting to know what would happen. They knew that the... uh, the plane was uh, going. It had succeeded, and Hans Beitel, he vomited for the whole day, and decided he would have nothing to do with that. It was really terrible to see that destruction ourselves in these pictures, and uh, many of us at that point decided that this should not happen again. I remembered Morrison arguments were this. It was known that to win the war against Japan, it would take an invasion of the territory of Japan. It was estimated with what Accuracy, I don't know, that this would cost at least six million Japanese and one million American soldiers. And then the question the bomb killed only 200,000. What do you choose? And on what basis do you choose? The choice was made. You know, when you think of it, if I had been there at that time, if I had been asked to work on the atom bomb the manhattan project i was too young but if i had been there and if i was a jewish and if i knew if I know that hitler is preparing himself his atom bombs and that if hitler has its atom bombs the war would could have been very different i'm not so sure that i would have said no i'm not so sure You see, things sometimes are not simple.
2: Do you remember when you first were entranced, not just even by the night sky, but by the the, the idea of science? When did did that start to take hold in you?
1: Probably, uh, Lac Saint-Louis is a lake close to Montreal, and uh, my parents had a summer house on the lake and it was open the sky was very largely open the horizon was very low and what i remember is the learning that the planets were wandering were going throughout the constellation and following them and learning You see, my interest in astronomy came from the attics of our house. All my uncles, after their studies, put their books in big boxes and leave them in the attics. And I spent a lot of time reading their books in science. For some reason, when when I was 10 or so, I was fascinated by the, the sky and I could read book on astronomy and on the evening go on the side of the, the lake and, and see the planets moving in the sky. And that for me was uh, really great. This, this is where I got the great emotion.
2: Then when you were 16, you managed to get a summer job, I think, Mm -hmm. at Harvard, at the observatory in Harvard. How did you convince them that a young French boy from Quebec, they should take you and hire you? What did you say to them? What did you write to them? How
1: did you convince them? Mm -hmm. I had decided that I wanted to become an astronomer, but I wanted to know what it looks like in practice. What is the life, everyday life, upon an astronomer? So I thought the best thing to do was during the summer to go to one of these observatories. The one closest to home was in Boston at, at Harvard. So I decided to write a letter saying, could I spend some time with you? I don't know what to do, but I could do the dishes or some." And they answered me, one of the astronomers, Fred Whipple. Fred Whipple was a specialist of the comets. Fred Whipple answered me personally. He said, you you could come when you want. I don't think you, you could help us, but you'd be welcome. And it would cost you $1 a day, which was most reasonable. So I went there, and I met a number of people. For me, it's a great experience. It's a great experience out of Quebec because at, at that time, Quebec was a rather provincial location. For me, it was getting on the world. I had a lot of discussion uh, through religion, for instance.
2: Yes, because there you had a lot. You met up with a lot of atheists and scientists. Were you still? Did you at that point, at seventeen, when you went there, did you still believe? You were raised Catholic. Did you still believe in in God?
1: Yes, by habit I would say, not by a personal discussion. I was born in a very Catholic family. Everybody believed, and, and as a, a good son, I believed. It was more like this. And then I came and I found that there were people who were not Catholic and who were really worthwhile and most, more interesting, in fact. I thought that the discussion that I had with them were much more interesting because they were open. They were not all known. The truth was not written. So for me, it was a great experience in knowledge in humanity in, in the world,
2: when people always ask you, you say whenever you have a lecture, people always ask you about God, and is there a God or, or about spirituality? Do you tire of that question,
1: or do no, you i think it 's a fundamental question. What I tell people, which is my point of view, I, I have no knowledge of any truth on this, is that uh, there is no conflict between religion and science. Science is telling you facts, so there is no, no conflict. You might think the world was made by God. What I think is that I don't know. For me, I have no answer. But I don't think that the people who have an answer are wrong. I do believe that they have their own reflection. This has brought them to this point of view. So the truth for them is their truth. Some become very much believer. Others are atheists. It's a subjective. It's not objective.
2: You say that, that science is not about uh, morality. Science does not have morals. Science That's where religion comes into, or philosophy comes into. They're two separate things and can exist together?
1: That's right. Science can tell you what it is. cannot tell you what is good. It's values, science will say... For instance, uh, how to make an atom bomb, but it's only able to tell you whether you should make one. Science has no knowledge of, of what is good and bad.
2: In terms of good or bad, I'm curious what you think about the increasing exploration into space. You have NASA, who you worked for, but you have lots of countries. Israel, just attempted, unsuccessfully, mind you, but attempted it to, to land on the moon. You have private industries, Elon Musk, and uh, Richard Branson has a space tourism company.
1: Is it a good thing or a bad thing? No, it's a bad thing. It is a dangerous thing. We have already sent many, many thousands, millions of objects. And the, the important thing is to know that even a screw would be mm-hmm. so fast that it could destroy satellites even a small piece of metal could be very dangerous so there are now some experiments some proposal to be able to clean but for the moment it seems to be far away
2: how messy is our universe and or, or close by how messy is the universe with things floating about
1: there sometime you see in the newspaper uh, a picture where you see all the little points and it is gray with points but i don't think for the moment it is dangerous the most dangerous thing is what the chinese did one day they decided to shoot at one of the satellites with a bomb to show if it would work. It crushed the satellites in thousands of parts. Each of these parts can be dangerous.
2: Dangerous how so?
1: Well, because it means another satellites. If you break a satellite in the thousand part, you make a thousand little satellites. that continue to turn around the Earth and become dangerous themselves. If they hit one of our satellites, or, or they, they could destroy it. They could destroy... There has been this recent destruction of some of the radio communication satellites because of hitting a small piece.
2: And so when the Chinese were doing that, was that a sort of space warfare? Is that what, what,
1: what Trump talks about? No, probably not. They were trying to find out if their instruments were good enough, whether they had taken consideration the fact that this would increase the number of uh, roaming objects. I don't know
2: in terms of roaming objects in the universe, I hear
1: there's an asteroid named after you. Well, I should tell you how this come. A group of students of mine gave my name i'm I'm grateful for them, but it's a small, it's about the size of the Mont Blanc, about the size of a big mountain, namely a few kilometers in diameter. It circles the Earth around Mars and Jupiter. It's just a stone, it's just a big stone. These days, as you probably know, there have been experiments on comets, Rosetta and so on, and we are exploring this but this is one of the millions of the rocks that turn around the sun. Can you see it? Have you ever seen it? No, you cannot, you cannot see it. It is too small to see. It
2: but you're floating in space, so you're always going to exist. <laughs> I don't know. The, the asteroid that hit the Earth that they say was most likely, or the, the, that led to the dinosaurs dying, the massive that asteroid. the same size. You're about the same size. Yes,
1: it's about it's the same size as many other, including the one that has my name.
2: Wow! So you could you could hit us if you wanted to smarten us up.
1: Yes, the fact that uh, it happened several times, we have several greater, which were due to hitting of uh, meteorites or comets. Could
2: tomorrow an asteroid come and hit us and do us all in?
1: Yes. In fact, there is in preparation a space watch, namely, to find out all the meteorites or comets that the orbit of which could meet the orbit of the Earth. There is not a big catalog that I prepared. So far, there has been no no, no recent danger. Yes, in Russian, two years ago, there was. A, I don't remember the name a uh, 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 stone not that size that broke all the windows and the absin and the some and more like that.
2: so could there be an asteroid because we don't have the means right now to blow it up if it's coming to earth, right?
1: The program today is what to do, and there are many research done on what to do if we would hear, suppose that tomorrow on your radio, they' say we have spotted an asteroids the orbit of which will meet the Earth, say, in 2000-something. What to do? There are many programs that are developed. One of them was to send it an atom bomb and destroy it. But that's worse, because instead of one big rock, you make thousands of small rocks that are still big enough to do a lot of problems. There are other ways, which would be, to try to deviate its orbit a little bit so that it would not pass the Earth, but it's not sure that this would succeed. And for that, you have to find it quite ahead of time. If you don't detect it less than a year, you have no chance to prepare yourself.
2: Can we? Do we have the ability to predict an asteroid, or could an asteroid still surprise us?
1: Asteroids have a regular orbit, so we can follow a long time. But comets very often come to us near the solar system for the first time, and comets in this sense are far more dangerous. But don't worry; the probability are very, very, very low. <laughs> Thank you.
2: to talk again later for another show and we'll talk about whether there's life on other planets and chance and play in the universe and its effect but I thought we'd end today with one last question and I read somewhere if this is true that your favorite planet is
1: Venus why is that? Why? Because when it is in the sky it's so beautiful it's so shiny it's so bright when I go out uh, In the evening or in the morning, depending on where it is, and I see it, it is like a sign for me, like a spotlight sent to you. I mean, that's also very selfish, but that's the way I feel.
2: It's something that you can see, that so much is unseeable in the universe. Is that part of it too?
1: Yes, and changing, not being always there. You you can wait for it or or you can be sad because it won't be there for several months or so.
2: Can we see Venus now?
1: No. Venus, you can see it uh, only four hours before sunrise or after sunset.
2: What does it look like in the sky to you?
1: It's the brightest thing after the sun and the moon. If you see something that is unusually bright and is close to the horizon... Either west or east, it is in Venus. The next thing is, is Jupiter, but much less bright. So when you know it, I mean, you recognize it right away. And when
2: you see it, what does it do to you inside?
1: Like an old friend. <laughs> an old friend coming back. Thank
2: you. We'll talk again.
1: Thank you.
0: On Ideas, you've been listening to The Origins of Us, the first of a two-part series we're calling Finding Meaning in the Universe, conversations with astrophysicist Hubert Reeves. In part two, the importance of play and chance in our universe and our lives, and whether life exists beyond Earth. We also have more information on Hubert Reeves and videos shot at his country estate in Burgundy at our website cbc.ca/ideas. Hubert Reeves sadly died on October thirteenth, twenty twenty-three, at the age of ninety-one. Special thanks to Camille Scoffier Reeves, web producer Lisa Ayuso, technical production Pat Martin. This episode was produced by Mary Link. Our executive producer is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayat. For more
2: CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.